our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So, Zach, man, uh, it's starting to get super warm out here. Almost all the rosé is gone from our office because the the rosé list is, you know, our top 25 rosés of the year is, is getting ready to come out. Um, are you excited for rosé season? Are you a big rosé drinker? Yeah, you know, I am. It's funny. I, I I think the last year or two, I've been a little out on rosé. And then I just, I've been, you know, for the purposes of my wine program, been tasting a lot of rosé lately. And um, I I gotta say, it feels like this year has been, uh, this year's offerings, I've been really into. I, I'm surprised. A, a few producers, um, some uh, European producers who, with the 17 Vintage, I wasn't really into their wines, have, I think their 18 offerings have been really good. And I do think that we're starting, you know, there's, We've kind of, I think, almost caught back up to the demand in a sense. I think, you know, some of them were really caught short by the the rapid growth here in the U.S. and and the wines they were putting out to meet that demand were kind of crap. And uh, I think you're starting to see the quality level catch back up to the demand um, with a lot of the producers internationally. And uh, a few of the ones, uh, some of the more local stuff is uh, takes usually a little longer to hit the market sometimes. But uh, but what I've tasted of 18 has been good as well. And and yeah, I'm 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 back in on rosé. Awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of crazy, uh, crazy good stuff out there now. I mean, I would say though, also with the, the growth for Zane, we'll do a whole, you know, episode about the top 25 list when it comes out, uh, that we do every year. But, um, there also is a lot of not great stuff. that's just pink, but, you know, I think that that's also as, as this, this market is just exploding. Um, you know, you just have a lot of that, a lot of that wine coming on the shelves that, that they, just think they can sell because it's light pink and, you know, most people will just chug it. Uh, but, but I've, I've come back around to it too. I think that there's a lot of people doing really, really cool stuff, which is, which is really awesome. Um, and yeah, man, I mean, besides that, I've just been, uh, watching the NBA playoffs. Yeah. I was gonna say, I have an important question for you, which is something we haven't really, we've only <laughs> very, very sort of, uh, briefly broached on this, uh, on this podcast, which is like, and it's very relevant to the topic as I'm sure all of you who have looked at the episode title have figured out. Like, are you a sports fan? Like, what, what are you into? I'm a huge sports fan. Um, I'm a huge sports fan. I'm really big, more college than pro. Um, but I love Isn't basketball. Isn't supposed to say War Eagle? Yeah, I'm supposed to say War Damn Eagle. Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge uh, Auburn fan. Um, I did not go to school there, but I grew up there. My parents were college professors there. Um, and I went to a school that didn't have sports so for That's college. That's not true. Our schools, our schools were, were college rivals. You went to Emory, right? Yeah, Emory didn't really have sports. Come Look, on. I, I did play-by-play. Play tennis for, team, maybe. I did, I did plenty of play-by-play play for some uh, Emory-NYU basketball games in my day. Um, but, yeah. I mean, it's, NYU didn't either. I mean, like, they just – and then, you know, I That's went to – That's why they let me do the play-by-play, play, man. Because <laughs> it know, wasn't a real like, sports school. Oh, here's here's the, here's, here's the swimming team, like, Division three. I mean, it's just not the same, right? And I, I do think there is something about that. You know, I, and my friends that went to schools with, with sports – programs still feel really connected to their undergraduate programs in a way that, you know, I loved Emory. It was an amazing school. I highly recommend it. But I just, it's not the same connection because we're not doing that, you know, every fall, everyone getting together who's still in the city to watch one of the games or whatever. So I think, you know, you can see why these schools keep these sports around, even though, you know, I, I can admit, even as a sports fan, that like we need to play these players and that the way the NCAA treats college athletes is dubious at best. Um, yeah, generous. I mean, like, come on, it's ridiculous how much these schools are making. But you see why they're fighting for it, because the amount of connection that, the, the, you know, the rest of the student body feels to school just because of sports is insane. Um, and, you know, you have, you have I mean, Alabama's 
hate Alabama, but they're, uh, you know, they're, they've been these amazing articles in, in the times about how, you know, their admissions have just skyrocketed from around the country, not just from the state of Alabama. And the caliber of student has really risen because students around the country want to go to a school where the team wins. Yeah. So it's, it's great. So I'm a big sports fan. Uh, I've gotten more into the NBA as I've lived in New York um, because of, uh, you know, the Josh who co-founded Vine Pair with me is a massive Knicks fan. So he got me to become a Knicks fan. Uh, Josh. Josh, if you're listening, I'm sorry. It's brutal, man. Like it's just brutal. They always find a way to screw it up. So I'm just like really hopeful that you know like we'll bad get because- Kevin DeGrant next year in the number one pick, and like that'll be it. You know. You know it's you know the Knicks have been bad because my NBA team moved away over a decade ago, and I still feel sorry for Knicks fans. I know it's terrible, right? It's like it's just pathetic, and like and the and none of us can really bring ourselves to liking you know. The Brooklyn Nets, like I mean, I, I, there definitely are Nets fans. Let's be clear, but uh, I'm not one of them. I'm definitely still a Knicks fan, and uh, it's just like such a. Oh. But that's why I'm really interesting to talk to to Baxter. We're bringing on today because you know one of the coolest things though to follow as a as a drinks fan and a and a basketball fan is this amazing phenomenon that's that's come out of the NBA over the last I would say three or four years. But his piece last year really shed massive light on it, which is this massive obsession, um, you know, among some of the top NBA players with wine and, you know, wine tasting and making wine and collecting wine. Yeah, it should be a fascinating conversation. uh, And uh, I look forward to having. Yeah, man. So I I think, you know, let's, let's, let's not sort of beat around the bush anymore. Let's bring back strong. Sounds great. So, uh, Zach, I'm really excited about the interview we had today for the podcast because, as you know, there seems to be this this phenomenon that's that's creeped up in the world of sports, especially the NBA, over the last few years, and that's a prevalence of really heavy wine addiction uh, among those. Well, not like among, problematic, just just not like problematic. You know, but you know, I mean, you had a Wall Street Journal article recently saying that LeBron James is one of the most influential people in the wine world in general, you know, but I think a lot of this all started with some reporting done by Baxter Holmes. Baxter, thank you so much for joining us, reporter for ESPN. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, Baxter, I think one of the the first questions to get into this is how did you, I mean, you've been a basketball reporter for a a while now, but how did you basically covering the NBA's obsession with wine really start? Right. So I had done um, a handful of stories. I'm always looking for human stories about anybody in sport, really, because I think that's one of the um, most important ways to draw a connection to the outside audience that would otherwise have no connection to these very large, famous, wealthy um, uh, people. So um, I, I have, in my time at ESPN, which I've been here for about five years, I've done a handful of those, um, actually in a roundabout way about, there was one about chocolate milk, one about bone broth, one about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I noticed that um, players on their social media accounts, and even during some post-game press conferences, were frequently making references to wine or posting pictures about wine. And I had this initial curiosity as to, uh, because, you know, the athletes are, they can be incredibly um, competitive. They can be um, obsessive in a way. That's partly why they got to be so great at what they are. They're, they're When they dive into something, they really um, go uh, 100%. And but I, I, I wasn't interested in the sense of like, oh, 
here are people with uh, with a lot of money that's spending money on on things that cost money because that's not really interesting. What I was interested in was if the players were really making um, a strong effort to get to understand wine at a very um, you know at, at an aggressive level, not just you know looking at a list and buying the most expensive thing on it and. I, so I had that curiosity, you know, I asked my bosses if I could kind of look into it. They're like, sure, you know, if you find anything, let us know. Um, so I did that in between some other stuff and I ended up in a, in a roundabout way connecting with a master sommelier uh, named Chris Miller, who, and I told him I was, you know, kind of in a needle in a haystack. I was curious if players were actually really curious to learn and if it was um, a genuine interest. Um, and he, you know, happened to tell me that he was at dinner with LeBron James and Chris Paul and once and had gotten to know them and that they very much that he was blown away by their um, their want to learn and to be interested in it. And it really took off from there. Um, so over a, a five month period, you know, doing a ton of interviews across the country with a lot of players um, as well. And, um, you know, they are athletes are very much into details and in how things come to be and all the details that go into making something special. Cause that's a huge part of how they get to be where they're at. And I think they had looked at wine through the same lens. And so that's where, that's where it, it kind of started. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I didn't realize, you know, a year later or two years later, how big it may, it, it maybe was or would become, but it, that's the Genesis, so to speak in a long winded answer. <laughs> So I'm wondering, you know, one of the central parts of this story, both the story you reported and I think a lot of the way it's been talked about is how influential LeBron James has been in all of this. And obviously, he's been influential in the NBA in a very significant way, too. So it's maybe not a surprise. But do you get the sense that that he his it's my it's my sense and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that him being uh, sort of outed, I guess, or, or outing himself as a a big wine lover, a connoisseur, and not just, as you said, going to the most expensive bottles, although he certainly has, you know, some very, very expensive bottles on his Instagram account, but, but really seeming to be a, a, someone who's really passionate and interested. Has that, you know, kind of created a permission structure for a lot of other players to get into it? I mean, you, you talk about it in the piece when he was with the Cleveland Cavaliers about him taking team, the team to some wineries in Napa, but, but also just, you know, he's obviously the most famous basketball player on the planet and him being into wine, I would imagine has given some of these other players permission to either get into it or to maybe step out of the shadows with their own love of wine. Because I think, you know, there was a previous era in the NBA where I imagine being a big wine lover was not something you were, you know, all that keen to, you know, sort of share with the public. Yeah. The, uh, I, I in fact, on that very note, I think back to something that JJ Reddick told me about when he was a rookie, he's a, a guard for the Philadelphia 76ers. And he was telling me about, when he was a rookie in the NBA and getting onto the team charter plane and going back to his state, this is more than a decade ago. And he would see beer and liquor, you know, in, in guys' hands if they were drinking anything. And that was it, the NBA, as like a lot of pro leagues, was a beer and liquor league forever. Um, and then it started to change. And uh, the, but LeBron is such an enormous has such an enormous influence in so many areas in the NBA. I mean, if you want to get into like basketball stuff, the short-term contract um, or, you know, superstars leaving teams, whatnot. I mean, he, when he does something, it opens the doors for that thing for everybody around the league in some form or fashion. If it's 
you know, getting into, excuse me, if it's getting into um, uh, media or, you know, a lot of the different things that he's done, certainly there have been others, but when he does it, it, it really pushes things forward because of who he is, the following that he has. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, when, when, and there were, there've been different people around him. I talked to him a little bit for that story about um, getting into wine um, initially. And, and he's had some people around him, some of his business partners who are very much into wine. Um, and then some of the people that he's hung around with, you know, Carmelo Anthony kind of was far more into wine than LeBron at one point. And so you have, you have a network of friends, but because of the, because of who LeBron is, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned it, his um, Instagram account, when he's posting pictures of certain Napa cabs or um, some of these other wines that he's into, you know, you could, you could talk to the wineries themselves. They'll see a boost in their online uh, traffic or people, you know, or, or to their, uh, to their social media accounts. So he, uh, I think as, as my company ESPN would say, I mean, he, he moves the needle in a really important way in a lot of ways. Uh, and wine is certainly one of them. Well, I mean, that's what's interesting is I've talked to producers before, you know, people like Kathy Corison, who he's, you know, Instagrammed her wines, um, you know, a few others, and they'll say he can actually, he could sell out a vintage for them, which is crazy or make people who, weren't aware of, um, you know, their wines in the first place, become aware of those wines. Because I'm, I'm so, sort of curious to go back to this, you know, 10 years ago when it was really more of a beer and spirits league. What do you think, I mean, was it a bunch of different, uh, you know, things that sort of happened at the same time that caused wine to sort of be adopted league wide in, in this really interesting way? I mean, sometimes people joke with me, was it Amari Stoudemire taking red wine baths? Like, what what was it, do you think, that was really one of the inflection points that started causing a lot of players to really get into wine? And as you're saying, as connoisseurs, not just as people are like, okay, well, here's a way to show that I've made it by buying, you know, a $300 bottle of, you know, something. You know, it's interesting. I I spent uh, a considerable amount of time trying to find, and I do this in a lot of my reporting, it's like tracing something back to kind of a big bang if there was an initial starting point for a lot of this. And what I found with this, with wine, was that it was kind of a culmination of things. I remember talking to some of the guys on the quote-unquote banana boat crew, which is uh, LeBron, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Paul. And they hung out together, but um, I, I think a couple of them had said, you know, when you start to get a little bit older, you start to get in your mid-30s, things kind of slow down a little bit and maybe you're not wanting, you know, as much hard liquor um, period. Cause you can maybe feel it more the morning after you athletes tend to try to take care better care of their bodies later in their careers. They're trying to get one or two more contracts, um, uh, you know, before their, their body kind of breaks down. So he was saying, you know, as you kind of reach middle age, you kind of slow down a little bit more. Um, and I also think that the, I'd heard this too, that the influx of players becoming more interested in investing in uh, technology in Silicon Valley. They're spending more time in that area. And that's, you know, one of the biggest or one of the most uh, popular prevalent wine regions in the world. So if they're at dinner with certain people um, who are from that world or their dinner there, there's probably going to be some pretty nice wine on the table. And, um, you know, I, I had also written, you know, in a recent story that Greg Popovich has had the San Antonio Spurs coach, you know, he certainly played a role to some degree of these really di- uh, kind of lavish dinners with wine being at the table. 
Um, you know, Carmelo got into it, I think around 2007 and when he was with the Nuggets and they were owned, they're still owned by Stan Kroenke, who's now, I think the, the full-time owner of Screaming Eagle. So there's, I think a culmination of puzzle pieces. I, I was, uh, but I haven't found one particular thing. Uh, but look, the the trend, however, exactly it arrived again, I think it, I think it came about in different ways and forms, but once you had. These, uh, you know, there was this iconic photo of Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, and LeBron toasting glasses of wine. I think that was really important. If you, you know, given who these guys are, their clout around the league, if they're drinking wine, I think it it opens the doors for a lot of other people to do it. LeBron certainly, and uh, and and here we are. Baxter, do you think it has something to do with a, an increased presence of international players in the league too? Because I think, you know, you uh, in your piece that you mentioned about Greg Popovich, you know, certainly there's references to some of the players from um, the international players, Tony Parker from France, Manu Ginobili from Argentina, who who had a, a certain, you know, fr- just coming from those cultures, a certain um, appreciation for and, and familiarity with wine. And, and I wonder, as the league has gotten more international, uh, has that sort of also, you've got, you know, a lot of players coming from Europe uh, who have maybe just more cultural familiarity with wine from an early age. So it's not just something that they develop a taste for as they reach, you know, as you talked about with the banana boat crew guys who has kind of get to this latter half of their career, but guys even in their early twenties, maybe who now are coming into the league have, you know, obviously suddenly a lot of money, a lot of ability to sort of, you know, um, go to wineries and they have uh, name recognition, but also a, 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 you know, an appreciation and understanding for wine from an early age. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's a great point. We, we've seen, uh, and the Spurs are, are key in this. And in, in, uh, we talked about LeBron kind of opening the door for, for wine in a way in the NBA. The Spurs have been pioneers in bringing players from overseas. I mean, it's sometimes having um, guys from all over the globe um, up and down their roster. And, you know, I've, I've talked to, you know, many of these players just from around the country, or, uh, around the league who are international and the culture is, is different there in terms of them growing up with wine on the dinner table. In fact, I don't even think if you talk to a lot of these players, they'll say that they never really even looked at wine. Um, you know, as, as Americans have, they just, it was a part of dinner. It was what you had with dinner. Whereas I think if, if some Americans grew up with thinking that wine was something that maybe your grandparents drank with dinner or something to that effect, um, I think internationally you see a lot of them just looking at wine as another part of the, of uh, the dinner table, much in the same way that we might look at like a bowl of bread or something. So they're much more um, uh, in tune with it, much more, you know, and then you obviously certain countries, Spain, France, Argentina, where wine is a huge part of the economy, a huge part of the history um, all over Europe, really. Um, it, it, there's much more, more of a foothold there. And, and, uh, there's no doubt that when they bring that over to when they become a part of the league, they bring that with them. And that if the dinner culture um, and, and team dinners become more of a thing, that that's what's going to be on the table. And they're going to expose some of their American teammates to it who, who might not have otherwise. And it'll just spread from there. So, Baxter, I mean, it's obviously these guys are super competitive, right? And I think you've read about this a little bit, but man, many of our listeners may not have known this part of, of your your last article how competitive are these guys when it comes to wine with each other? They, I mean, look, they're, they're competitive with everything. That's part of the reason that they, they're at where they're at. You know, we, ESPN, we did a documentary, um, a 30 for 30 called broke. And 
part of it was such a fascinating dynamic of it to me, but I think it really spoke to the competitiveness of a lot of these guys is that they would spend themselves um, into poverty in a way, you know, like you'd see guys, um, I think you talked about the documentary. If one person drove up with this unbelievably expensive car, another person, they had to get a more expensive car. Or if you have, you know, really nice jewelry, I have to get better jewelry or, you know, uh, 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 styling, tailoring, you know, with outfits. So the competitiveness extends to every realm of who they are. And it exists at the dinner table too. I think I know this from talking to some players, uh, the notion of, okay, I, I want to be, if, if there's pressure to be able to read and dissect a wine list and order a wine that will pair with whatever dishes at the table or, you know, maybe impress the sommelier in front of everybody else. Like there's cachet into that. I think, um, you know, there's cachet, I think for the average person, I certainly, you know, uh, like not looking like an idiot at the, at the table if I'm ordering wine, but for these guys, because of, uh, the competitiveness that exists, you know, within them and being in the top 1% of their field, it extends to that too. So, um, it's, it's absolutely there in a way that, and I, one of the more poignant moments I remember was speaking to Carmelo Anthony and he was talking about the pressure that he felt going to a really high end, uh, I think wine collectors dinner in New York where the mandate was to like bring your best bottle. And he, he was describing the emotions he felt and he, he became kind of very animated in his movements as he was like, what am I going to bring? I don't know what to do. Da, da, da. And in reality, you know, here's a guy who's a rock star. Like he's, he's one of the most famous people in the sport. Yeah. Um, and, and yet you see the, the competitiveness of, of wanting to, you know, hold up your end in that way, reveal itself in that moment. So I know this might be a slightly difficult question to answer, but I'm wondering you know, you mentioned it's mentioned in the piece that some of these players have, you know, started a winery, obviously Dwayne Wade. Um, and, and you've seen this a little bit with some other athletes in other sports. But so far, what I've seen typically has been guys who are, you know, investing in a very expensive property in Napa. They're making very high end wine. Do you see any of these people either endorsing or getting involved with with, I guess, for lack of a better word, sort of everyday wine? Is there is there in, do some of them see this as a business opportunity down the road, do you think? That's a good question. Um, I know that uh, Dwayne Wade's wife, Gabrielle Union, I think has invested in a Chardonnay that's, I think, at a little bit more approachable price point for a lot of people. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised, although I don't, I don't necessarily have any in, insider uh, knowledge on this, that if LeBron ventures into this area as well. Um, but I will say this. There was a point in time when players were not as interested, excuse me, in post-career um, investments until way after their career. But there has been this turning point within the last maybe 10 years where they're investing uh, in the middle of their career in all sorts of ventures. I mean, I, I, Dwayne, and speaking of wine, Dwayne Wade, I remember telling me that he didn't think he was going to start uh, getting invested in that until he was 40. And they were like, well, why not right now? And so he did, I think, you know, a few years before his career even ended. And I say that to say that the players look at it um, as a smart business opportunity so that they, uh, you know, are not necessarily so that their earnings don't fall off. So they kind of can gracefully slide from one career to the next and have their earnings be at a high level um, throughout. So that's been a huge shift. And I think that they see one as a huge part of that, in part because of 
the way they've already established their brand and persona as being people that are very interested, not just in wine, but in, in being connoisseurs um, to it as well. So I, I think that those factors, the, the w- dynamics of the way investing in the, in, or the way NBA players investing in things before their careers ended, I think plays right into them being uh, players in the wine game. So, I mean, obviously these guys getting involved in investing in wine and, you know, getting involved in owning wineries is really, really interesting because it really shows that the the passion is even much greater than being just a drinker. Um, You know, do these guys have tastings groups? Are they getting together and sort of all drinking once in a while? Is it really just these big dinners like, you know, when Popovich is hosting dinners, et cetera? Or are these guys really trying to get together with other people in the industry as well and learn from them? How are they getting the knowledge about wine? It, a lot of it depends on the NBA schedule for guys who are still playing. And, you know, during the year, it's very, you know, there's 82 games, I think, in 176 days. So it's a, about a game every other day, plus about 50,000 miles of travel. And then there's postseason playoffs, you know, maybe Olympics. Um, and then they have various business um, uh, responsibilities that are pulling them in different directions. So for some guys, it can be as simple as the next time their team is playing, the Golden State Warriors, and if they have an off day before or an off day after, spending some time to na- going to Napa and, you know, seeing some wineries. It can be, you know, doing that during the summer, certainly. Um, I know of, of, I think it was Carmelo uh, who was telling me about, in the off season, if guys were to vacation, they're now trying to vacation in different wine regions. So going to Spain, Italy, um, different areas uh, in France. I think Draymond Go- uh, Green went to Bordeaux. Um so that's a part of it. And then there's certainly the dinner culture. Um, you know, a big part of that started with Greg Popovich. Um, it has branched out to other teams who are, who, and some of whom are coached by his coaching disciples um, that now do uh, dinners with, with wine uh, being a, a prevalent part of the dinner table. You know, I remember in terms of tasting groups, um, uh, the banana boat tasting group of uh, Carmelo, LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris Paul, they kind of, they, they'll end up getting together in twosomes where they can, um, you know, get the four of them, their schedules aligning in such a way where they can get together is, is a, a tricky thing given the various directions each of them are pulled into, but that's something that's definitely into it or that they, they have done in the past, but yeah, a lot of it depends on their schedules. Um, but uh, there's a, there's a great eagerness on their part to learn and to understand it. And I know people in the wine industry have been very um, uh, accommodating in large part because they look at the, they look at the players as, as uh, great ambassadors and, and in not just uh, for the sports community, but just for helping, you know, people in general get into wine who otherwise might feel intimidated by the vastness of it, by the history of it, uh, by, by all the different, you know, different kinds of wine, uh, you know, tricky ways to pronounce things, all of it. Absolutely. So Baxter, I'm wondering since you since you said that, has your how has your relationship to wine changed since you kind of started reporting this? Because I get the sense from uh, from your social media that uh, you might have sort of headed down a little more of this wine connoisseur road yourself. I've definitely become more interested in it. Um, it was something I never expected necessarily, uh, but by virtue of the people that I met and interviewed, a lot of whom whom are big basketball fans. Um, but, and maybe didn't have a, you know, an NBA reporter to talk hoops with them with, uh, so that's, you know, that's our, our, our relationship kind of blossomed. Um, it's funny. I'll be at some, like, I'll be at some Warriors games 
and we'll be texting with winemakers who are just, you know, wanting to know what's going on in the game. And so I'll be, you know, giving them details and whatnot. So it, it's been interesting to me how that's happened, but it's been, yeah, it's been um, interesting learning um, and something that, again, I, I didn't anticipate, but um, I've, I think that in some ways, if, wine if i was like the average person and wine is like okay it's way too vast there's so many different you know regions and kinds of wine and labels and i, I don't know how to pronounce anything and i i don't this list might as well be written in sanskrit i don't know what any of it means i don't know what you know i've had some people who are very incredibly knowledgeable about wine and they're some of the most humble people i've met in terms of saying like look wine at the end of the day it's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be shared with friends. It's meant to, you know, don't take it that seriously. Nobody knows everything. Wine is too vast. It dates back to the beginning of civilization. So, um, you know, they've, they've opened the doors for me in that way. I still, in comparison to a lot of the people I've been humbled to know, feel like I know absolutely nothing. Um, so I'm just humbled to be at the table a lot of times on the occasion when I'm there. Amazing. So I, actually, I have two super important questions for you that have nothing to do with wine. But they have to do with my fandom. So number one, is Durant coming to New York? <laughs> Boy, if I if I had an answer to that, um, I'd be happy to give it to you. I think that a lot of people, maybe even inside Kevin Durant's own mind, are not exactly sure of of what the answer might be. Um, there's a lot of smoke, um, but I think the way you know. So we're recording on the day that we're recording this, the Warriors and Rockets are tied 2-2 in their Western Conference second-round series. And, you know, depending on how that series go or how deep the Rockets go or how deep the Warriors end up going, if they if they uh, get the three-peat, I think could determine things. But there have been a lot of people who have tried to read Kevin, who's kind of a mercurial figure uh, in the NBA. And it's been a tricky endeavor that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. So um, if I had an answer to give you, I, I – uh, I would. I will say that it's look given everything that's happened to the Knicks over the last whatever two decades. Oh uh, yeah, it's um, felt like one playoff series win and <laughs> under Jim Dolan's ownership. Yeah. There's part of me that has a hard time seeing too many good things happening there. Maybe it's just karma. Maybe it's whatever. They're gonna mess but, it up. <laughs> yeah, you've, I mean, I guess there's always a sense that if you feel like the Knicks are gonna mess it up in some form or fashion, but anything could happen. Kevin is a hard is a hard one to read. You know, he might change his mind day to day. Um, so at the very least, they're in position. And I mean, quite honestly, if you're a Knicks fan, I think that's probably some of the best news you've heard in a while. Right. It is. <laughs> okay, so I have a, a combination basketball and wine question, which is the whole point of this podcast. So Baxter, if you had to name your your all NBA wine team, active players only. So Carmelo's not eligible anymore. Okay. Sorry, dude. Uh, who, and, and I mean, I guess you can take, you know, I guess if there's a 12th man on the, you know, on the Los Angeles Clippers who's really into wine, cool. But I think, you know, pe- maybe names that people have heard of out there. Um, so who would be on the, the all NBA wine team? Sure. So the head coach is going to be Greg Popovich. Um, and that's an easy one for me. Um, LeBron would be on it. Um, I would also put Jimmy Butler on it. He's huge into it. And, uh, I think travels around with a wine case. I would also put JJ Redick on it. I think he told me his he's he's really into it. I know that I think he told me his wife will buy him a bottle of DRC for his birthday 
um, which I was thinking like, man, that's really like, that's really nice. Honey, if you're, if you're listening, please don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have the means, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Awesome. We're, I'm a podcast host. We don't have the means. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, nor do I. So, uh, so those three, let's see, I got two more spots. Uh, let's see. Carmelo's out. Dwayne Wade is out. Chris Paul is still in. Uh, so that's that's one. I, it's funny when I think of all the NBA teams, I'm like, okay, I need two forwards, two guards, maybe a center. <laughs> I was going to tell you to disregard position, but I figured, yeah, you, know, you can you can go you can build a, a complete roster if you want. You know, DeAndre Jordan is really into wine, and then uh, I'm going to go. I I probably should pick one of the Warriors. I know that that Steph Curry is really into it. Draymond and Durant are all as well, but. Uh, I think of of those. I'm going to pick Draymond. Um, I think he traveled. I believe he traveled to Bordeaux during an off season, and um, I've seen him talk some trash with with LeBron about wine. Um, <laughs> I think between like when Michigan State and Ohio State were playing, they like bet it, they bet some wine uh, in one. Maybe it was a football game or a college basketball game. I can't remember exactly, but yeah. So th- those are my. But again, I, I, I'm gonna I want to make this point when it comes to knowing wine in the NBA. There's Greg Popovich and there's everybody else. And it's it's almost a difference between like uh, a master sommelier and people who are trying to be a sommelier. So the gap is the gap is steep there. He obviously has many decades of experience over everybody else. But, um, you know, he, he's the master and uh, everybody else in the NBA is just is is far behind. Well, Baxter, one last question. Again, just more basketball related before we let you go for everyone who is listening while the playoffs are still happening. And that is, who do you think wins? Mm, that's, a, uh, that's a good one. I, I thought you might ask that after one of your previous questions. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I had I had previously maintained this notion. It was that I don't, if, if all things being equal, if the Warriors are healthy, I don't see any team in the NBA that can take four games out of seven from them in a series. Um but as the series go on, as guys get more banged up, and they've had a really long playoff run. I mean, I think if you add up all the postseason games they played over the last five years, it's like 83. That was entering this postseason. So that's an additional, basically, NBA regular season's worth of games. So fatigue is a factor. Um, you know, as we're recording this, um, the, the Bucks are up three games to one over the Celtics and have looked amazing. And, uh, you know, they're going to be coming up against Kawhi and the Raptors, and they've looked amazing. But right now there's a, a feeling I have that this might be that Giannis, Antetokounmpo, and the, and the Bucks. you know, I, I maybe have that same feeling that it's going to be really hard for a team to take four out of seven from them. Um, well, Baxter, our, uh, our engineer, uh, Nick, is from uh, Wisconsin. He's a huge Bucks fan. And you should have seen the smile on his face when you said that. <laughs> It's, Although I think he's going to blame me if you're wrong. Well, this is the thing. Like, what if, you know, uh, when they go – I mean, Kawhi is playing, like, unbelievable right now. He looks like the best player on the planet. And so that – I think what looks like that that Eastern Conference final series looks like it's going to be unbelievable. And, uh, you know, whoever comes out of the West, which is always a bloodbath, you know, will they – who will be left standing? Um, you know, some of the Warriors are really banged up, but they are hard to count out, man. And – uh, it, I, here's what I'll say. It should be a great finals. And if it's, I think if it's bucks and, um, warriors, if, if all things are equal and everybody's healthy, it should be awesome if it's bucks, um, rockets, but I do think it'll be a, 
a long series. And the name of the game is to take four out of seven. And man, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be tough for either of those teams to do. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a seven game series. So I know I'm kind of hedging a little bit, but that's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Baxter, thank you so much for joining us. This was really an amazing conversation. Um, and uh, maybe we'll get to bring you back on again sometime soon. Absolutely. Guys. Well, look, I really appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Thank you. Zach, I have hope, man. I have hope. He told me that the rant might come to the Knicks. Like, that's the all most that dangerous I thing, man. Dude, I didn't even need him to talk about wine as soon as he gave – you knew, you knew too that's all the question. That's the only question I wanted to ask. I was like, dude, just tell me if Durant's coming to the Knicks. I'm okay yeah, with I, it. I think we're going to get the number one pick, man. We're going to get Zion. We're going to get – You wanted to know who was going to win the championship too, I feel like. You, yeah, you wanted dude, a little insight And there. then I know – now I totally also know who to hit up if I need some DRC. I, like, apparently. you got to go find <laughs> JJ Redick, I guess. We'll just make it happen. I mean, dude, this was an awesome podcast. Um, I it was this was a really fun one to record. It sort of uh, you know it was just was really cool to to get his perspective on what's happening in the league, and um, also sort of you know really shed light on I think a, a group of players that have really become incredible tastemakers in the world of wine. I think that the world of wine would be you know remiss to not pay attention to them because it's funny. I'll talk to some producers and I'll say you know by the way, especially in in Europe, I'll say you know by the way. One of the largest influencers in the wine world, you know, the U.S. right now is LeBron. They'll be like, wait, are you kidding? You mean the basketball star? I'm like, yeah, he's a connoisseur. He knows his shit and you should take him seriously because he's, he's influencing a hell of a lot more people than the wine spectators of the world are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is really fascinating to see if any of these guys, you know, in one fashion or another, really try to kind of capitalize on that ability to influence um, instead of, you know, just a pure connoisseurship. And I think and, they uh, totally will do. These guys are business people. Yeah. These guys, these guys know. I mean, think about it. You know, LeBron goes to the Lakers just basically to be closer to his investments. I mean, these, as Baxter was saying, these guys are brilliant guys, and they know what they're doing. They have smart people around them. They're making really smart investments early on in their career, and they're going to be successful long term. And you know, that's that's why the wine world has to pay attention. For sure. All right, man. So everyone, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Vine Pair Podcast. Uh, shoot us your thoughts at podcast at vinepair.com. Love to hear what you think. Got any other ideas for show topics? Let us know that as well. And we will see you right back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to VinePair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.